Well, Kaidi, my name is Hidal from Nikkei Rising, and I will be one of your hosts for this episode of the Yonsei Podcast, titled, What is Citizenship? Hi, everyone. I'm Yoko, and I'm your other host for today's episode, and I'm really excited to dive into the topic of citizenship and explore what it meant during World War II and also what it means today. Our first guest today is Lady. She is a student at UC Riverside and a DACA recipient. At this time, she is double majoring in US history and political science. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lady. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Our second guest today is Nat Hayashibara. Nat is a Yonsei Japanese American and a third generation Chinese American. They are an environmental studies graduate who is currently pursuing a master's degree in geographic information systems. They are passionate about social and environmental justice and are trying to navigate this complex world without losing sense of self. They are also a steering committee member of Vigilant Love. Thank you so much for joining us, Nat. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I think we wanted to start out this episode talking about what you guys do in your fields of study and in your work, just to give the audience some context for where you're coming from as we start this conversation about citizenship. So do you each want to say a few words about the work that you've done and the things you do in school or anywhere else that has to do with this topic? Uh, yeah. Uh, so I am double majoring with U.S. history and poli-sci, specifically in concentration of international affairs. I arrived to UC Riverside with environmental science major, but I ended up switching it my first year. I always was inclined to history, just wasn't sure what that looked like career-wise. When I took the first couple of classes on like world history, when I learned about like wars and the creation of nations, that's when I got inclined to learn about how deep our history as people goes to uh, international like affairs. I started learning about like economic treaties. I learned about um, immigration treaties uh, between the U.S. and Mexico, which got me to learning about my history, and which is where I started to figure out that I was actually a consequence of a, a lot of these treaties and I wanted to get more information and background as to how events trickled down to my family's decision to immigrate here and for me to stay here in the U.S. as an undocumented person. Uh, so I entered into university as an environmental studies major because I, you know, that was the one thing I really knew I was passionate about and I still continue to be passionate about learning about environmental justice and everything going on locally and on a global scale. And I entered into geographic information systems because it's really a tool that you can use to visualize data and bring about trends from, from the unseen and turn data and numbers into knowledge and as a vehicle for understanding and, you know, conceptualizing a convoluted world. Yeah. <laughs> With today's episode, we really wanted to focus on citizenship and what it means. Preparing for this episode, I got to talk a little bit to my family about their citizenship story and how they came to be in America. When I was talking to my mom, who is from Japan, she came to America in about 1967 and didn't become a citizen until 1978 when she was 18 in Hawaii. Something that I found was really interesting was that she actually got a letter from Senator Daniel Inoue and Spark Matsunaga, 
congratulating her for getting her citizenship, which I thought was really interesting to have these like important names within the Nikkei community give her this letter congratulating her. I thought it was just so interesting. Though the story that I found even more interesting than my mom's was actually my grandparents on my dad's side. So I'm half Japanese and half Mexican, my paternal side being my Mexican side of the family. And I had learned that my grandfather from my dad's side came to America in the late 1940s, early 1950s, but he did so on his own. So at the age of 14, he was fatherless and wanted to be able to provide for his family. So he made the decision at the young age of 14 to cross the border on his own, undocumented, in search of work to support his family. At some point, he met my grandmother on my dad's side of the family, and her family was well-connected with the Mexican government. So because of that, she was able to get the paperwork she needed to come through the border documented. And during her early years in America, she lived in San Pedro, kind of near a terminal island. Because of that, she worked in the warehouses at, at the harbor and stuff like that, and was actually able to meet some Japanese Americans and befriend them, which I had no idea that my Mexican side of my family had any connection to the Nikkei community other than my parents um, marrying and having me. So (laughs) I thought that was really interesting. I guess stories like this can be found in in a lot of families, you know? And what I mean by that is everyone in America is an immigrant. Somebody in in your family has immigrated to America at some point, unless you are indigenous. Because of that, it's important to really recognize that, that your family was at some point a family of immigrants. And I think it's really important to really question how, why your family came and in what ways can you make them proud and make sure that their sacrifices that they made to make this journey are recognized by what, what you do now in life, you know? Mm-hmm. So after sharing my family's story of immigration and gaining a citizenship, do you guys have any stories that you guys would like to share? Yeah, so my family came over from, my Japanese half the family at least, came over from Japan in the early 1900s. And at that time, obviously, none of them were allowed to become citizens. And the only of my four Japanese Issei great-grandparents Only one of them ever actually became a citizen. I think that you could become a citizen as an Issei in the 1950s at some point. And so my great-grandfather did that, but none of my other great-grandparents did. And I think a lot of Issei never got their citizenship. And I don't know, I think of it kind of like, it's weird because we think of citizenship as something that affords you a lot of privileges, and and it does, but it's based off of these really arbitrary factors. And for my family, like my great-grandfather who came from Japan and got his citizenship in the 50s, didn't really have anything different about him that made him more qualified to become a citizen in the 50s than in the 1900s when he first came. He was always someone who tried to do good in his community And it was just the times that had to change to allow for him to get that status. So yeah, does anyone else have any stories about citizenship in their own families? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've never really thought about that relationship until recently and about the story. And I didn't really learn about JA history until recently, like mid-university, which is, you know, a testament to the whitewashing and erasure of American history. 
but you know, just one out of privilege because on one side I'm I'm Yonsei, so I'm fourth generation, and my grandfather was born here, and his parents immigrated here, and then you know they grew up on a farm to try to make a better life for themselves here, and during internment they were lucky enough to escape to Colorado and work on another farm, and you know become. Um, I mean, he was born here, so he was born a citizen because he was born on the soil and he was able to make a better life for himself, join the Air Force, um, become an engineer. And then on my Chinese side, my grandfather immigrated here due to the period right before uh, H-1B. So the 1965 Immigration Act, he benefited from selective entry for skilled workers, and he also became an engineer. And so for me, and I'm able to be a citizen because of them and their labor. And you know, I was able to explore the different facets of my identity because of them and go to university and study a field that you know I was passionate about. Instead of out of necessity like them, I never really had to fight for citizenship. Citizenship. But yeah, just trying to figure it out. And I think it's, you know, a really beautiful parallel, you know, like you guys said, that, you know, our families were able to lay a foundation for us. And now I'm able to do that for myself, but also, you know, for the broader community and people who still have to fight for citizenship and that label. For my family, um, majority of my mom's family uh, immigrated here. She has a total of about nine siblings. All of them have been able, the ones that are here, which are about five of them, have been able to get some sort of citizenship or protection. The earliest one uh, benefited off of the Immigration Reform and Control Act in 1986 under Reagan. Um, So my aunt was the first one to get it. And then my uncle proceeded with it as well. And then I have a couple uh, uncles who have been able to get citizenship through marriage. So out of the whole family that immigrated here, my mother and my father are the only ones who have not been able to qualify for citizenship, you know, and that includes me. So I am undocumented and my mother and my father still are. Uh, but it's interesting to see how even though my my parents, like siblings, have been able to qualify for citizenship, they have been excluded for any like particular reason, like little things that discourage uh, people from applying, but also like automatically disqualifying them. But it's inter- interesting to see how siblings are able to qualify for a particular reason, such as like work or like marriage. So you really take note of like who the U.S. would allow to be a citizen. I think that that flows really nicely with um, what we wanted to talk about next, which is kind of the injustice that citizenship creates just as a thing that exists. There's like multiple levels, right? Like, so firstly, it's that it, it creates a binary where it privileges some people. And so by definition oppresses others. And that binary is based off of nothing right so like where you were born you know stuff like that it's completely arbitrary and then there's this other level where even if you do become a citizen there's the citizenship means different things to different people and usually along like lines of like race and stuff like that because like during world war ii even if you were a citizen if you were japanese american you were sent to camp and so there it's it's interesting to me that there's there's kind of multiple levels at which citizenship operates to separate people and privileges people over others. And I feel like that connects really well with, with your story. So does anyone else have any 
thoughts about like kind of the unjust racialization of citizenship and the way that it operates in a really oppressive way in our country in World War II and now? I do want to add that um, what you mentioned, creating the binary with uh, citizenship. I surround myself a lot with the undocumented community. So most of my uh, friends are undocumented. That's where I found community, where I found that I am allowed to be vulnerable and safe. And a lot of us have talked about this in the sense that citizenship is such a social construct Mm -hmm. that affects our lives in the ways that by the government deciding who gets citizenship, who does not, they are essentially giving the message, who are we willing to dispose and who are we not willing to dispose? Mm-hmm. You know, when they deny a citizen, citizenship, our community sees that as a concern, like, where are we going to get resources? I am not allowed to apply for certain scholarships. I'm not apply, I'm allowed to apply for federal aid. And that kind of uh, brings up the question, like, what about health insurance? You know, what about voting rights? And But for us, the concern is just, like, we know that when the American politicians are promoting, like, the best for the American population, we're not automatically included in that. Mm-hmm. So we are all, like, our concern is where are we supposed to get resources? So we are essentially told, oh, well, you don't really matter because if you did, you would get health insurance, you would get uh, food, like uh, resources and this and that, that other citizens do apply. But because of your birthplace, you do not qualify for that. Yeah. You know, it's kind of ridiculous, um, you know, our, our current state of affairs. And, you know, as you said, throughout American history, the rules of who could become a citizen have changed, you know, depending on the state of things. Mm. And it's so depressing <laughs> that still in 2020, that we still have so many people that are dehumanized because they don't have that label and they are just as much as a part of our communities as we are. Mm. And, you know, this is a really, it's a really weighty topic and it's a really germane topic, especially, you know, everything that's been occurring this week regarding the F1 visa status. Mm. And I mean, in a country that's built on colonized indigenous land and systemic racism and environmental degradation. And, you know, when that profits off, profits off of immigration, even though we don't respect immigrants. I don't know. It's, it's so it's so sad. Um, but, you know, I guess on the other, on the flip side, the cliche that, you know, America is so diverse and has such incredible diversity of experiences, you know, being a citizen, even though there's so many injustices, you know, it's being in solidarity with our communities and, you know, with immigrants and seeing the beautiful work that, we all do and the relationships that are built from that you know i can't help but be embarrassed by our government to be honest but at the same time you have all of these brilliant and empathetic and beautiful people who are doing the work and are you know trying to create a life here and you know it's not a zero-sum game that you know american individualism wants us to believe you know it's, it's ridiculous that we don't have health care and that immigrants aren't afforded the same rights and protections that we are I just want to um, I want to add on to what Nat said about the F1 visas and the international students. I think when we talk about immigration, we should also take note of like classism and such. I notice a lot that when the international students were at, like are at risk, the institutions were more likely to back them up compared to when the undocumented community was advocating right. for the CARE Act checks that we weren't receiving. So a lot of the effort that my school, you know, I was lucky enough to receive some sort of aid because my or uh, my on-campus club of undocumented students like hardly advocated, you know, courageously, you know, uh, confronted administration and the UC system like 
eventually, you know, said like, yes, we'll like give you aid. And seeing with the international students, you know, the UC system was a little bit more responsive when it came to this. Mm. Um, and I'm glad that everyone is providing the help for international students because the truth is, like, regardless of where we come from, we should be able to access education. You know, we should be able to like access uh, safety and to essentially give our foundation wherever we want. You know, if it, if it is here, it should be allowed here. Um, but it is important to take note of, like, the general population supporting international students versus, like, undocumented students, where it's, like, that Americans tend to value, like, high skills as, like, a qualification to be a citizen in a way. Yeah. It's interesting how that that actually connects back to Nat's story, like, the way that their family was able to come here partially because of these qualifications, which it's great that people can come here, but it's also... I think says a lot about how we value human beings on things other than just the fact that they are a human being and should be able to live as such. I also think talking about the stuff and hearing what you have to say, lady, it makes me think about the privilege that I'm afforded as, as a U.S. citizen and the way that that makes me part of this system that's doing such horrible things. And as someone who is descendant of people who were not allowed to become citizens because of their race, um, I feel like that kind of grants a certain type of moral imperative to be an ally, be in solidarity and do whatever I can to point out when these things about like the basic ways that our country is governed, just like don't make sense, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think having the conversation is like the first step that a lot of people tend to refrain from having. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So with these stories about how much citizenship is racialized by the U.S. government and by society in general, I think an important question is what is citizenship? I mean, for me, besides the basic textbook definition of having rights and being able to participate in our government, I think it's mainly for me about community and feeling as though you you belong and that you're protected. Um, I mean, that's the human condition, right? You know, we all, we're social animals and, you know, we need to feel like we belong. And, you know, to have this, you know, again, arbitrary label that is based on, you know, the luck of the draw and that dehumanizes and ostracizes other people, I mean, you know, for me, again, very privileged to be born a citizen. And so I can even imagine, you know, what lady you have to go through in order, you know, once you get that citizenship, what that's going to feel like for you. Uh, For me, um, a couple years ago, I want to say I would definitely advocate for citizenship. I used to use the term dreamer. I do not now anymore because I know that criminalizes like the rest of the undocumented community who does not qualify for DACA. So for me, citizenship as a term is analyzed from a capitalist like scope that I need to understand that my citizenship would be complicit with capitalism in a way. So citizenship is essentially for a majority of my members just a paper that would allow us resource accessibility. You know, that's what our main concern is, resources. And I also see citizenship as an exclusion act, you know, like who is in, who is out, who does the government not want, who doesn't want, who does the government take in. But it is essentially a categorizing process. 
With everything we're talking about right now, I'm really reminded of the differences between, and I know this is more immigration, but I suppose from immigration, um, we, we move into the conversation of citizenship, but the differences between those who came through Ellis Island and those who came through Angel Island. Mm-hmm. And majority of those who came through Ellis Island, they were just simply asked, um, are you a criminal? And are you sick in any way? And if they said no to those questions, then they were let into America, you know? Whereas you look at the history of Angel Island, right? And some of these people who were coming from Asia would be held in Angel Island for months being questioned why they were coming to America. So with that, it also makes me think about how my own family experiences their citizenship being casted off to the side because of their ethnicity. In my in my opinion, this administration, it, this this hatred has grown exponentially. I feel as though this hatred has always been here, but it's definitely like showing face a lot more often nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, would anyone like to talk a little bit about the racialization of citizenship? Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm from Mexico. You know, I am white. So a lot of the things when it comes to citizenship and ICE and immigration and detention centers, conversation tends to really focus on Mexicans, you know? And the reality is that there's actually a deeper, like, disproportionality on um, Central Americans, Black folks. You know, Black folks make the uh, small proportion of our community, but they are incarcerated and deported at much higher rates. So I think discussing that, because when we look at David Dobrik, a YouTuber, is a DACA recipient, and when we look at him, we don't really see a lot of his comments harassing him, like, go back to your country. Mm. Uh, you don't see a lot of, like, saying, like, oh, you don't belong here. Because essentially, he does fit the status quo that uh, the U.S. is trying to implement. So I think taking into account, like, who do we focus, like, the conversation on when it comes to immigration and discrimination? But just taking know how, like, David Dobrik has the privilege of not being told, like, you don't belong here because he looks the way that he does. Mm. And the reality is that me as, like, a, like a white Latina, like, I don't get discriminated in the same manner, you know, like, as a peer of mine who could be more brown, but, like, not even be, uh, per se, like, quote-unquote illegal. Uh, but they could face that discrimination regardless of, like, their status. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you said reminds me so much of something that had a big impact on me and it was like kind of an aha moment. I was watching this woman, Maru Mora Villapondo, speak. She's amazing. She's undocumented and she's an activist in the Seattle area. And she said that she used to be all about getting people citizenship and that now she's not. And it's kind of about questioning the entire system and the entire premise of the thing. And that she now sees her job as much broader and much more systemic. And it was, you know, the virtual event that she was speaking at was centered around the Black Lives Matter movement and allyship with that movement. And she said that to her, she questions, what does becoming part of this even mean? Like, what is becoming a citizen in a place that's killing its own citizens? What does that mean? What is that? What does that really do? And it reminded me so much of what you're saying about kind of transcending citizenship, kind of, and not seeing it as like this golden ticket to like equal treatment, because clearly it's, it's not really that. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I owe a lot to my Ndaki community and through the labor of love, 
I've learned that what we seek is liberation, you know, because a lot of us have intersectionality that we need to consider, you know, LGBT folks, Black and docu folks. And so for us, citizenship might be only one component of our liberation. So my community has really emphasized like liberation and going beyond the systematic like golden ticket, as you said, like of like citizenship and just finding community within each other. I feel like that's definitely something that I could follow growing up and being half Japanese, half Mexican, especially during this time. And just seeing like how the Japanese American community was once affected by this denial of citizenship and now seeing a similar thing happening to the Latinx community and undocumented community is just at times for me heart wrenching to see the similarities and which like only proves to me that America has not learned its lesson. Thank you so much for being here, Nat and Lady. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me and including me in your conversation. Thank you so much. This was such a great opportunity. Yeah, we were really glad that y'all were able to join us today. I think this conversation was really important, especially with everything going on nowadays. But yeah, be sure to join us next week for our sixth episode of the Yonsei podcast titled A Bus Ticket and $25 which we will deep dive into the resettlement of Japanese Americans after their release from incarceration. This episode will be hosted by Matt and Michelle. To learn more about the history behind today's episode, be sure to visit jampilgrimages.com and click on the Nikkei Rising tab. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Nikkei Rising for updates on the Yonsei and other programs from Nikkei Rising as a part of the Tadaima Virtual Pilgrimage Series. The Yonsei podcast is made by Hiro Adeza, Michelle Hecker, Yoko Federenko, Johnny Narita and Matthew Wisely with theme music by Michelle Heckert. This has been the Yonsei Podcast and it's been Yonsei.